Planning a medieval-themed interdenominational holiday party for all of my friends sure is a lot of work, but thankfully all I have to do is salt a whole bunch of eels, and that's just about it. Joe Mason's gonna take care of the rest. Olivia! 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 Oh! Oh my god! Aaron! Hello! Hey, so, um, I, uh, I, 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 I just got off the phone, uh, with, with Joe. So you remember how Joe was supposed to bring the, uh, the Christmas ornaments, the candy canes, the, uh, the novelty sleigh, the Christmas cookies, the gingerbread house, the plum pudding, the snowman, the stockings, the fruitcakes, uh, the myrrh, <laughs> and the turkey. And the booze. And the... And the booze. <laughs> yes, I do remember that. I'm so glad he is doing the bulk of the work for our medieval Christmas party. So, he might not be able to um, make it uh, this year. Oh, no. Don't yeah. tell me. He just uh, called me to say that he's uh, he, he was on an archaeology site and uh, he uh, dug a hole that was too deep and now he can't get out of it. Oh, of course, because they don't have the stairs that go up. Oh, no. Joe, how could you be so short-sighted? Oh, no, our Christmas party is going to be ruined. Who's going to save our holiday party? Literally all we have is 500 salted eels. <laughs> <laughs> Olivia, 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 oh, listen, no. listen, listen, oh, listen, no. listen. We've got this. We just need to, in the next uh, hour and a half, or however long it takes, <laughs> depending on <laughs> depending on how good the conversation is, uh, we need to figure out how to host the greatest uh, medieval-themed holiday party ever on our own without Joe. I know we can do it. Do you, do you really think so? Not really, but we're just going to have to try. Okay, you know what? If it doesn't work, we'll just go out to the shops buy as much cider as we can and drink to forget yeah yeah just barricade the door so nobody comes in sounds good there never was a podcast recorded here <laughs> then it becomes a um, they died 50 years ago and it becomes a france 1812 themed uh, christmas party <laughs> <laughs> to the barricades so okay right i think first step to trying to figure out uh how to host a medieval holiday party we've got to figure out what is Christmas all about? Absolutely. Charlie Brown. So let's take it from the top, right? Mm-hmm. Why is Christmas? Well, see, this one's actually quite straightforward. I was on Twitter and I saw a tweet from an account <laughs> called um, Fun History with a Blue Tick that told me that Christmas was actually originally a pagan holiday. And I the saw Christian the, church stole it. I saw the, the same tweet from the based pastoralist who also <laughs> has a blue tick. Wow. Fun fact, that's a real Instagram account. No. <laughs> the base, I'm just on the based pastoralist. Yeah, you spend your whole life in the pastures and then tell me how based that is. <laughs> um, well, okay. So, yeah, I won't lie. That did ring a few alarm bells, but I decided just to take it at face value because, you know, who would go on the internet and just lie? <laughs> you think someone would do that? No. Not me. I'd never do that. No. Hey, pass the potatoes. <laughs> anyway, so, um, blow me now. So, uh, not exactly. So the problem is that, uh, in, uh, the first century in, um, 
in Judea. There really was not <laughs> a lot of there were not a lot of great records on uh, people's dates of birth that survived to the modern day or even survived uh, to the fourth century. So whilst and, and especially because by the way, early Christians did not really care that much about uh, the, the details of Christ's early life. Which, because they were pretty sure that they were all going to be enraptured soon anyway. And then it sort of slowly dawned on them that that wasn't happening. And they moved the date up to 500 and then 1,000 and then 1,500 and then 2,000. Uh, when it kept stubbornly not happening. Classic. In many such cases, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> the date of the apocalypse is always deferred. Um, but there was a sort of... There was a, a popular understanding starts to emerge in around the 4th century, when people are starting to realize, oh, we're actually going to be in this for the long haul, huh? Um, but they should probably get the facts straight about Christ's life. And so there is a... It does, they do generally settle on, these early Christians, that Christ is conceived in the vernal equinox and is born in the uh, winter solstice, so December the 25th, or roundabouts that. The problem with the... The problem, the problem with that is that, incidentally, there were already a lot of pagan holidays that coincided with, um, with the 25th of December. Either they were sort of around that time, or in some cases were literally on that date. So there's a lot of speculation that the date of Christmas was settled on by early Christians because it was already inhabited by some special holiday of Near Eastern paganism. A great example of that being, in the 19th century, the historian Hermann Usner uh, noted that Emperor Aurelian elevated Sol Invictus to the prime Roman god and, and named the uh, feast day of Sol Invictus as the 25th of December. Now, Sol Invictus is a deity associated with the sun. Put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that. <laughs> um, but a lot of people have disputed that evidence ever since, that basically, you know... Lots of people have questioned the sort of the timeline on that when Sol Invictus was actually elevated, whether or not the 25th was actually, you know, a date that was associated with them just because it has the word in... People have seen texts that have the word Invictus associated with the, with the 25th, um, but Invictus is just a word in Latin. <laughs> it's not a guy's name. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, a, that's on some shaky foundations. I will say, though, that where I will give based history facts, blue tick, credit, is that there is definitely truth that Christianity did did appropriate a lot of stuff from other religions. Of course it did. Like, every culture appropriates from other cultures. And especially if the Christians who are being converted are themselves, um, you know, are were themselves pagan at an earlier point in their life, it actually makes quite a lot of sense. They would want to keep the same rhythms and practices they, that they grew up with because they'll have emotional associations with that beyond that of, like, religious practice. It'll be a thing that you did with your family or a thing that you did with your community, and you enjoy that and you want to keep doing that. What I object to is sort of the the sort of top-down... Yes. Sort of, this top-down narrative where it's like, the church fixed this date because it is... Um, because it was already significant, and so they could... They could trick people into being Christian. When in fact, you know, that was something that people sort of, I suspect, did quite autonomously. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, it seems like yeah, it creates this false sense of conflict mm-hmm. when really there develops over time a sort of shared um, pool of culture and of cultural precedent um, and custom from which basically everyone is drawing on regardless of their religion. Um, yeah, no, I really like this idea that like we really need to, when we're thinking about like how Christianity emerges and becomes the dominant faith in Europe and the Levant in the sort of early sort of centuries after its creation, I think we need to think about it less as these sort of big civilizations smashing into each other and defeating each other or outwitting each other and more of a sort of more more treat these different customs as parallel sort of outgrowths of the same phenomena and I think one of the interesting ways that you can look at that is to uh, compare Christmas and the sort of the other big December holiday that emerges um, in the in the more or less the same part of the world at a not too dissimilar time, which is Hanukkah. Absolutely. So you have a similar example of a winter festival taking place. Um, where light is a very significant part of it. Yes, light and celebration. And if um, and you may have heard the notion that Hanukkah is only celebrated today because of its proximity to Christmas to give Jewish people... Um, a kind of analog for Christmas. And although that's absolutely part of why Hanukkah looks the way it does in the West in its current form, I mean, there, you know, there was no uh, Hanukkah bush uh, <laughs> in the year, in the year 100 AD. Um, but nevertheless, Hanukkah has been celebrated for thousands of years, despite the fact that it's not a particularly spiritual holiday for Jewish people. Um, It has been celebrated for a very long time as a kind of jubilant festive holiday where you're not bound to the same religious obligations that you are on major Jewish holidays like Yom Kippur and Pesach, but rather it's a day where you feast and you celebrate um, and just enjoy the goodwill and the light of the holiday. Mm. And so the fact that you have these parallel sort of these parallel holidays that, again, obviously, you know, Christianity being the being the majority religion in the West will have had a disproportionate effect on Hanukkah, as you say. But I think it is incredibly telling that these same themes are recurring, even when the origin story and the theological importance is so wildly, wildly different. Yeah, of course. Well, one of my favorite uh, misconceptions about the link between Christianity and paganism arises from um, the reason for the name of Easter. Um, and so a lot of people have... What, Ostara, or whatever they say it is. Well, a lot of people have commented on the fact that the name Easter is actually, in fact, derived from the name of a pagan goddess, an English pagan goddess, um, or a Germanic pagan goddess who was a sort of fertility goddess. Um, I'm not even going to try to pronounce her name, but it was like Eostra or something. Um, Estra, maybe. I always thought it was pronounced like or like something impenetrable. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No idea. Um, and so it's true that this is where Easter gets its name from. However, Easter was not named after the goddess herself. Rather, this goddess had a pagan feast that was celebrated in the month of April. And therefore, the month of April came to be named after this goddess. And therefore, that oh. name was given to Easter, which, that, which, you know, after it had become the primary 
feast in April. So it wasn't an example of appropriating or stealing or trying to erase a pagan holiday, mm. but rather just a kind of gradual cultural transmission. Yeah. I think that also, it's interesting you mentioned the, um, the lack of a theological basis or emphasis in, in Hanukkah, because I think you can, you can kind of say the same thing about Christmas. Christmas is culturally a much bigger thing than, um, than Easter, but Easter theologically is way, way more important to Christianity. Like Christmas is just the day he gets born. (laughs) All the important shit happens in 33 years later. Yeah. Like, but, but the fact that these, there are these motifs that, um, that, that keep coming up again, this, this, the equ- the things happening around the equinox and things to do with light, stars, like things are always glowing and shining. And, uh, and the fact that, that has become so entrenched is not, I don't think, it's not a coincidence. I think it's just that like, if you live in the Northern hemisphere, it really, really helps <laughs> in the middle of winter to light a bunch of lights and have a big party. And the theological kind of justification can can come can come after the emotional one and the social one, the social role that it fulfills. And I think also, purely from a practical standpoint, is it easier to have a massive multi-week festival in spring when you're plowing and sowing and lambing and doing all of these extremely labor-intensive things to get ready for the growing season, or in the middle of winter when there's basically not much on. Hello. Good evening. Dracula. It's me. Hello. I'm so glad you could make it. We haven't seen you for a few episodes. By so glad uh, I could make it, does that mean you want me to come in? Dracula. Yeah. You have permission to pass through this doorway. Get in. (laughs) Ah, Dracula. How are you, Dracula? I haven't seen you in ages. How are you doing? Well, you know, ever since you sent me to that psychiatrist... I've been feeling a lot better. I've really been processing some stuff, and I've been trying to give back a little bit to my community. Oh, Dracula, you're so sweet. Yeah, I've actually started working in a uh, in a queer pay-what-you-can cafe. <laughs> I don't make any money, but that's not why I do it, you know? Well, yeah, it's about more than the money, isn't it? Before I come in, I need to know, just for, like, health and safety reasons... Do you have any crosses in the building? Don't worry, Dracula. Yeah, we're sort of doing a sort of non-denominational thing this year. Yeah. You're good. How do you feel about menorahs? It's fine with me. (laughs) Such an ally. Now, um, I've brought a couple of things for you, my good friends, right? Now, I know you said in the invite that it was (laughs) B-Y-O-B. Oh, uh, so you brought a bottle of wine, did you? Oh, I I, I see what's happened here. <laughs> oh, you know, B... Uh, the B technically does just stand for bottle, 
but... I brought them in these large cartons. Uh, I hope that's not inconvenient. Dear. Oh, dear. You can make some black pudding with it. It's fine. Yeah, it's no problem. It's the thought that counts, Dracula. I also brought these lovely candles for you. I bought them from Sainsbury's. Wow. I am a creature of the night. Well, that's perfect, Dracula, because we were about to record the part of our podcast where we talk about Advent, the time of Christmas when you traditionally light a new candle every Sunday. That, that, that's cool. I'll leave the candles here. I don't really want to be around you guys when you're talking about Jesus. Yeah, that's fair. Why that, don't you go... I don't have the best relationship with that guy. I'm gonna go into the living room, okay? Sounds good, Dracula. Okay, See you can you be soon. happy. There's like, you can put anything on Spotify, alright? You're good. Oh, you shouldn't have told Dracula he could have the aux cable. He's just going to be playing, you know, uh, Transylvanian folk music for the next five If hours. I hear Rob Zombie's Dracula even once, I'm leaving. So, as, you, as we were just saying to, to Dracula there, what comes before Christmas is Advent. And this isn't just a place where you keep chocolates. It means the four weeks leading up to Christmas. Now, what would medieval people have been doing in Advent? Do you remember? It's traditionally marked by fasting, which is then broken on Christmas with a big feast and followed by the customary 12 days of Christmas. Woot woot, or Christmas tide, as it's more appropriately known. Now, in Advent, uh, you'd be doing a couple of things. You, like you say, you'd be fasting, but it's important to break down what we mean, what we mean by fasting, because it's not like people just didn't eat. Yes. It's more I could just say they changed their diet. And the biggest way that they changed their diet is that they did not eat meat. So in Advent, the only meat that you could eat was fish. And the most abundant fish available to you in most of medieval Europe would have been... Eels. Good old eels. Love an eel. So I love this fact. In 1289, the Bishop of Hereford served a Christmas Eve meal to his guests, which was herring, five conger eels... 30 codlings, and salmon, bread, and wine. That actually sounds like pretty tight. Sounds phenomenal. Depending on how you season that, that would actually be really nice. When I was um, traveling a couple weeks ago, I was reading about how... In the land of the Latinas. In the land, in South America. I was reading about how um, Catholics in South America, in like the 16th and 17th centuries, obtained special permission from the Pope to eat um, guinea pigs and capybaras no! during uh, fasting periods. Um, I guess maybe because they didn't have a lot of access to fish or something. So if well, you were, you're inland, I guess. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, after Advent, as we've said, you have the 12 days of Christmas, which end with Epiphany, which I think is on, on the 6th of January. Um, so this was not always so. In fact, Wait, really? there's a reason why there are 12 days of Christmas that of the song. originally didn't, because of the song, um, that originally didn't necessarily have anything to do with Epiphany. Rather, it had to do with the fact that Catholics in the East and in the West used different calendars. So in the East, they used a lunar calendar, um, and in the West, they used a solar calendar. And anyone right, uh, such as Islam. Anyone such as myself who's Jewish or anyone who is Muslim will be familiar with the fact that our holidays um, change dates in the Western calendar. Is it the Julian calendar? The Gregorian calendar? I can't keep up. I don't know. Uh, the whatever. current one. The current calendar used here in the United Kingdom and most of uh, Europe and the Americas. Um, so, yeah, our holidays change dates every, um, every year. And so... 
the uh, church officials didn't want to have to choose between which date Christmas should be celebrated on because it was actually being celebrated on two different days in the East and the West. So instead they said, okay, they're both both going to be part of Christmas and so is every single day in between. So it was purely due to administrative difficulties that we ended up with 12 days of Christmas. Well, I like it. Oh, by the way, you mentioned the, the lunar calendar and that reminded me, um, I read a wonderful fact when I was researching about the sort of the origin of, of the Christmas date that in sort of in in the medieval Islamic world, there were a lot of imams who had to sort of scold their their congregations for like getting a bit too into celebrating the prophet's birthday because they're like, <laughs> you're just doing Christmas. <laughs> this is I can see what's happening. Ah, oh, classic. You just want to celebrate Christmas. It's a tale as old as time. Yeah, it's the Hanukkah bush all over again. Yep. Come in. Hey, it's me! Oh, it's Guy Fieri! It's Weird Medieval Guy Fieri! Long time no see! Oh my god, it's been ages since you possessed Aaron's body with the spirit of medieval flavor. Yeah, we had to grow a homunculus out of a mandrake root and then put him into that. It was a whole thing. Yeah, he looks a bit gnarly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna take that as a compliment! <laughs> Thank you. I'd forgotten how challenging your voice is to hear. Well, you're just in time, weird medieval Guy Fieri, because we are delving into the history of medieval foods during Christmas time. That's brilliant! I've actually brought a whole wild boar! Wow, and it's still alive! Are we gonna slaughter that in here or outside? I could do this! Can I do this in the corner? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Alright, I'm just gonna go into the corner and start gutting this pig! <laughs> I hate this. Actually, you know what? You know what, Guy Fieri? Can you just, like, can you go into the other room? Put a tarp down. Dracula will help you. Dracula will love this. <laughs> He'll be very into it. It's right up his alley. <laughs> well, weird medieval Guy Fieri really knows his stuff. Because at a proper Christmas feast, you need a wild boar. Yeah, he's a, he's a smart man. I mean... A, a boar is um, an incredibly symbolic animal mm. in the Middle Ages, as I would argue it is now. Um, and hunting boar is a really popular pastime amongst medieval aristocracy, because boars are like tanks made out of pork. <laughs> <laughs> and they've got knives on their face. <laughs> a tank made out of pork with a knife on its face. <laughs> and like, they don't feel pain. They're one of those, I mean, they do feel pain, but they're one of those animals where like shooting it just makes it more angry. One of my favorite facts about boars, and one of the reasons I found it so traumatizing and such a like incredible thing to hunt, is because the boar allegedly, after a certain point, it doesn't run from you. It turns around and it charges you, yes. and that's why they like they love to a uh, uh, sort of attach. As we talked about before, um, you know, medieval people love to do basically their own version of like Aesop's fables or just so stories, and they would love to attach moral values to animals and the boar is like the boar is actually kind of a hybrid in many ways because it has it's ferocious and so it has this it's attached it's associated with tenacity and resilience and martial prowess but it's also fucking evil yes so the boar is um 
according to the ratio discourses in Mondus et Ratio, where the boar is a beast noir, one of Satan's creatures. Other um, beasts noir are the fox, the wolf, the bear, and the otter, for some reason. So the, the boar is a sinner, and he gives bad advice. So don't take advice from a wild boar, because he's an agent of Satan. <laughs> and so, no, it's, it's super important. And so, isn't it interesting, on the day of the birth of Christ, you kill the servant of the devil and consume his flesh in a hyper-ritualized fashion. That is very, uh, very fascinating, yeah. I mean, it's almost like there's this weird cultural undercurrent to medieval Christmas that's, like, a little bit creepy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, medieval boar hunting was very ritualized, and they actually mm. had a special kind of spear. I don't know if you've seen depictions of these. No, I haven't. That were only used for boar hunting. And the idea, basically, is that it looks like a normal spear with a very thick um, sort of shaft or handle. Um, but right kind of where the pointy bit, the pointy metal bit, meets this handle, it's got kind of a crossbar, like a sword. The what idea... The the idea being that you don't want the boar to stab itself too hard on the spear, because if the spear goes in too deep, then the boar is, like, right next to you. So it's literally... <laughs> and then the tusks are right next yeah, to you. Yeah, then the tusks are right next to you. So, yeah, it's, um, it's very ritualized. And I was actually... This is not a medieval quote, so I'm sorry, but it's such a good quote. I wanted to read it. It's, um, a quote from the guy who founded the scouting movement in the UK. Baden like, Powell. Huh? Yes. I was a scout. I yeah, and um, and he was like a committed naturalist, environmentalist, except he loved hunting boar. <laughs> and he he had all these quotes like, yeah, I know it's hypocritical, but like, I just love stabbing boar. Um, <laughs> Who's that? That's that voice. And um, he has a, a quote that says, not only is pig sticking the most exciting and enjoyable sport for both the man and horse as well, but I really I doubt be- the horse is into it. But I really believe that the boar enjoys it too. <laughs> well, <laughs> seems like a reach. I think that man just thought thought about this too much. Yeah. So yeah, apart from your boar, what else have you got? Your medieval Christmas feast. Another thing you definitely need is mince pies. Absolutely. Now, I as a child was always baffled by the name mince pie, and we have mince pies here, by the way. You guys can't see this, but we have like the most festive setup imaginable there are not one but three candles directly next to the microphone and laptop in a really frightening way <laughs> but also very aesthetic but also very aesthetic and we have uh spiced biscuits from little we have all butter we have deluxe six all butter mince pies from little there's a little um <laughs> stalin over there yes we've got the speculatios yes oh yes anyway so just to set the scene Anywho. And we so, are drinking big cups of spiced cider. Yes, homemade spiced cider in a medieval style, but more on that in a minute. Um, so, I, as a child, I was always baffled by the name. Because I was like... Because my mom would be like, Aaron, let's go and make mince pies. And I'd be like, okay, cool. And then she'd be like, here's the jar of mince meat. And I was like, wait, what? And then you get it out and it was not minced meat. No, there's like, no meat in there's it. No, well... There's not any more. Not right now. But back in the Middle Ages, um, it literally was meat. So you would a mince pie in a in a medieval feast was basically just like leftovers. It was like, it was, you know what it was like. It was one of like one of those Tesco meal deal sandwiches. that's like all of Christmas in one. Yes. Sandwich. <laughs> 
Yes. Well, yeah, because medieval people had much less of a resistance to combining sweet and savory. Mm. And so you get a lot of medieval recipes that include meat, but also massive amounts of spices um, that we associate with desserts like cinnamon and nutmeg and also lots of sugar. Mm. So you would have these pies that were like minced meat, um, but also nuts and raisins and spices and sugar. And um, it was, yeah, very popular in the Middle Ages, kind of fell out of fashion afterwards. And eventually a more sanitized version was created that didn't include any meat. Yeah, so you'd have like beef, lamb, goose, chicken, basically whatever you have lying around. Plus, you know, plus what you what you know of today, which is, the, you know, the suet and the fruit and the and the spices and the sugar. Because it was, as we mentioned before, you know, this is a very fallow part of the year. You're basically just sort of working with whatever you've got lying around. You can't grow anything. You can't ha really harvest many new things. So you're basically just like left with what's lying around. And so the mince pie is a great way to sort of combine leftovers into something that, at least to the medieval palate, <laughs> is edible. I mean, okay, controversial. <clears throat> I think it sounds pretty good. If you ever go I think to it like an Indian restaurant in the UK, I do. And you can get like a curry. It's got loads of cream and stuff in it, but then you can also get rice that has like nuts and raisins in it as well. And the whole kind of culinary sensation, I think, is wonderful. Okay, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. I'm still not sure about it in a pie. Fair enough. But I see, I, you know I take your point. Valid. I'm extremely valid. While we're on the topic of food, um, I think it's worth mentioning, as um, any Jewish listeners will know, that food was also an extremely important part of Hanukkah celebrations, as it is now. So just like in the present day, um, fried foods were very popular on Hanukkah. Um, as like a, a young Jewish kid, I felt like I was often told that it was fried foods were consumed because of the symbolic importance of like oil in the Hanukkah story. And <laughs> that seems sense, like a post-rationalization. The sense I got from researching this was more just that medieval Middle Eastern cultures loved fried food. And so, <laughs> of course, they featured in most festivities. Um, but I think something that is quite a distinction between Christianity and Judaism is that Judaism is really, really full of these foods with incredible symbolic importance, mm. not just in the act of eating the food itself, but also in the taste and in your response to it. I mean, because I think Christians, you know, take communion once a week in certain sects. And from what I understand, you're eating like a little square of bread. Or it doesn't taste like nothing. A dried wafer. And it's about kind of the symbol of consuming. It's incredibly underwhelming. And if you compare that to once a week as a child on Friday nights going to um, the Arab Shabbat services at the synagogue and afterwards we'd all gather around a table in the synagogue's kitchen and they'd plunk down these two massive warm like steaming loaves of golden brown challah bread and we'd all stand around them and say the prayers and then just start you know kids would just start like ripping chunks off with our hands and devouring it because it was just the most delicious thing ever and you know, it's really important in Judaism to have, like, these specific types of, of food and also to have food that you enjoy. I was reading about um, medieval food traditions in Judaism, and one thing that I really enjoyed, not Hanukkah-specific, but 
a little tidbit I'd like to share is that um, in medieval times when a Jewish child came of age um, to begin to learn Torah, one of the customs was that he would be given a cake made with honey and be told to eat the cake and also that they would write the letters um, of the first, they would write the first words of Torah that he'd begin reading upon a slate and then they would cover the words in honey and the child would lick them off. <laughs> and the idea was that the words of God would be as sweet as honey in this child's mouth and that would set the stage for the rest of his experience engaging with Torah. For oh, the that's fun. I like that. Yes. Um, so you're literally consuming God's words and by creating this sort of sweet experience, that's supposed to set the stage for your relationship with Torah. I think, I, I don't know, I think we can, once again, I think the if we're doing a sort of comparative history here of, of Christianity and, and Judaism in this period, I think what we can take from this is that there is something incredibly life-affirming about sharing food. Yes. And in this, um, and in this incredibly sort of fallow period when we're all just sort of, you know, just sort of happy to be alive. And like just just to sur- just to be surviving, which is you know, is a huge part of the sort of. Not spirit, not spiritual, but like sort of moral story of of Hanukkah. I think you know. I th- I think that it, it it what I get from this is that the food that you eat at these feasts or at these you know on on these special occasions or feast days are a way of saying as a society you know we are still here. Yes. We are still alive, despite the fact that it's horrible out, and there's, like, <laughs> wolves and boars yep. on the, uh, just on the fringes of our, of our society. We are still around. Yes, absolutely. And this is attested from, even though the story of Hanukkah and the impetus to celebrate it doesn't appear in the Old Testament, in the earliest sources, food is very centric to the Hanukkah story. And so we have um, specifically verses relating to Hanukkah from Jewish sources um, that say, here's a quote, Because of this, the children of Israel shall make a very great feast in their pots and cauldrons, with pieces of cheese, gladness and feasting, a good day of sending portions to one another, food from the frying pan, and dough kneaded until it is leavened, so its glory will grow with honey, all manner of baked goods. The Jews ordained and took it upon themselves to confirm this letter, to make a day of feasting and joy, and a good day. So I mean, that says it all, doesn't it? It's very evocative, and there was a great uh, medieval quote that I read uh, from a rabbi who said, One must not make light of the custom of eating fried food on Hanukkah. It is a custom of the ancient ones. <laughs> <laughs> this KFC came from antiquity. Exactly. I mean, you have to treat that with a grain of salt, because whenever any medieval person says... Actually, Alexander the Great did this. Yes. Whether they're Jewish or Christian or whatever. You always have to go like, yeah, but you would say that, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, yeah, but it did seem like it was actually, in this case, extremely well attested that the okay. practice of eating uh, fried food in oil and fried dough specifically was a very long-standing custom. But yeah, it's true that the customs developed and changed a lot. So some examples I found of foods that were eaten in different places in the world on medieval Hanukkah were balls of dough which were deep fried and drenched in hot honey. Mm. So that originated in the Middle East but kind of spread worldwide with different variations. In France, 
You might have fried pastry stuffed with dried fruits and nuts. In Italy, you might have ravioli fried and stuffed with cheese, eggs, and spices. Uh, noodles were also popular in Italy. And cheese everywhere um, was yeah. a traditional Hanukkah food. And so this is actually another interesting story. And then I'll wrap up Hanukkah foods. Um, no, I'm having fun. But actually the story of Judith kind of became associated with Hanukkah, despite it not actually having anything sort of, um, you know, to do with it um, from the sources that we know. So it's kind of unclear how this link exactly formed. But the story of Judith and similar stories that became linked with Hanukkah featured the practice of Judith, who was a Jewish woman who was who had moves made upon her, so to speak, by um, Holofernes. And Holofernes essentially implied that he was going to rape her, so Judith put it off by saying, let's wait until the evening and I'll cook you dinner. And apparently, um, as the story goes, Judith made him pancakes and put lots of salt and cheese on them so he would get thirsty and drink lots of wine at which point he got so drunk that he fell asleep and she hammered a tent post into his head and beheaded him. (laughs) (laughs) And so this is a a story of Jewish triumph. And I really, really like that people heard this story and thought Judith fed this evil guy cheese pancakes to kill him. So let's eat lots of cheese pancakes. I'll drink to that. Um, so yeah, but again, lots of, um, symbolic importance with food on Hanukkah as well. And as a medieval Jew, you can bet your buttons you'd be eating very well. So we've got it all. We've got all we need to do. We've got the, we've got the wild boar. All we need to do is fry some dough, stuff some shit into a pie. Yes. And we're set. We need lots of honey. Lots of honey. Always honey. And, uh, I'm going to stay away from your pancakes from now on. (laughs) Yeah, don't drink the wine. (laughs) Oh my god, who is, why is everybody early? Unbelievable. Alright, fine. Alexander III of Scotland! The ghost of Alexander III of Scotland. I, what's happening? Hello everybody, it's me. I've, ever since I died tragically on a hearse in Fife. Oh no, I didn't get to Fife, is that right? Alright, ever since I died... Very, very, very fucking pushed <laughs> in West Lothian. I've been looking for a place where I can drown my sorrows. You wouldn't you happen to have any booze lying about, would you? Oh no, he's tur- He's forever stuck as the world's drunkest ghost. He's the ghost of Christmas piss. Ah! <laughs> pushed. <laughs> I saw it as... Where's your hot babe from Fife, anyway? Oh, no, she was a wee bit delayed. She was at the Wraith Rovers game, and <laughs> things got a wee bit feral. You can't know people from Fife are. Can't he trust me? You're so right, Alexander III. All right, well, look. Do you have anything to bring here? I have got a wee bit of bevy, eh? Oh, Alexander, you should... Let me take that off you so you don't pose a further risk to yourself. You're right, it was just slipping through my ghostly hands. (laughs) 
I'm I'm actually fine. I've only had a couple of drinks. I'm good to go, officer. <laughs> Alexander the Third. Why don't you know Dracula and a weird medieval guy fieri are butching a wild boar in the other room? Why don't you go join them and you know see if you can make yourself useful? Don't strain yourself too much. All right, I'm just going to go into the living room and I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, dear. Yeah, run along. Oh, my God, ghosts are real. I mean, you're a vampire. I didn't know there would be a second thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that brings us to a very important point, though, doesn't it? Which is we need to have some booze on hand. So I don't what is he even brought here? Um, so the most traditional, I would argue, medieval Christmas drink is the wassail. Wassail? Wassail. Was wassail. So wassail is part of a, a to- there's a toast. So in order to toast, you say wassail. Wassail! And I say drink ale. Drink ale! And it's basically drinking to some, wait, don't drink yet, do not drink yet. Oh, Because shit. an important part of medieval drinking. Oh no, she's standing up. I don't know if you're aware of this. You gotta have to talk really loud. So, when we drink nowadays, if we drink to someone... (laughs) I just... You just made me spill wassail all over me. When we drink to someone, what do we do? What do we call that? Cheers. What's the word for drinking? Toasting. We toast, and... The origins of the concept of toasting... This was a setup. Well, that's why you put bread in the toaster. Arise from the fact that in She's the Middle Ages... She's holding toast, everyone. I'm holding a slice of toast. Here's one she prepared earlier. There, No medieval drinking session was complete without what's called your sop, which is the piece of bread that you put in your drink. Oh, God. So. Okay, for context, everybody, she warned me that there was a garnish <laughs> to this... But wouldn't tell me what it is. And oh, I'm so, gonna have to drink bread juice. No, it's okay. Well, we can both dunk it in mine. No, 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 no. I want to get into character. Yeah. If we're trying to do a medieval holiday party, I need to get medieval with it. And so official. And so officially, wassail was the sort of spiced cider or ale that was drunk in the Middle Ages, so either apple cider or ale or maybe some kind of wine. And it would have spices and fruit often would be added to it as well, sometimes roasted apples. But the most important part was you would also throw a bunch of toast on it as well. And you'd have it in a big bowl. This offends me on like a... Oh, okay, I'm not... I'm just gonna lightly dunk it. And this was uh, just a, I think it was just part of making, like, bread more palatable. It was just a filling meal. Can I eat this? Yeah. What, do, what are your thoughts? I mean, it tastes good, but this was already pretty good challah bread. So. Yeah, that's fair. Um, Did you make this yourself? Yeah. Sweet. And so, yeah, I've got mine sitting for a while. And so the medieval practice of... I hate of looking at that. ...wassailing... <laughs> Is um is rather akin to modern caroling, which was also kind of a thing in the Middle Ages, but wassailing was kind of the primary cultural practice. It was traditionally done on the last day of Christmas, and essentially what this entails, um so there are two types of wassailing, so kind of the mainstream type is that you would go door to door, um, with a bunch of, you know, your fellow townspeople, your neighbors, 
and in particular you would probably go to the houses of landlords or wealthy people in your neighborhood and you'd be carrying with you this big wooden bowl of this spiced punch it would have a bunch of bread floating on it oh, and you'd knock on people's doors and you'd sing them carols or you would say prayers and give them your blessings and then you would offer them a drink from the wassail bowl um and so and in exchange you would hope that they would um you know feel some sense of goodwill towards you and that they would maybe then give you some food or some money or some sort of other small gift okay this bread is like that's properly that's soggy awful. now oh, oh no you just <laughs> broke off oh my god you're... well you're you fucked broke off i am fucked um, meanwhile while while olivia's dealing with that i just like to know that here's another example of uh, a sense of collective communion where you have you, you are you are communing of the same thing you Wait. know Actually, no. I'm trying to cover for the fact that Livia's got a wooden, a giant wooden spoon and is trying to fish out her bread oh, dear. from the wassail. Okay. Oh, there we go. It makes a disgusting sound when it comes out. A nice, like, plop. Yeah. There we go. Well, it's going to be very authentic. I don't know why the practice of offering someone a soggy slice of bread in what was probably, like, lukewarm beverage by the time you got to the third or fourth person's house. You know, it probably tasted pretty good. It's like a crouton. It is a bit, actually. Yeah, I kind of rate this. From a like sensory point of view, I hate it. But yeah. like, I can I can rationalize my way into like understanding why you think it was good. Well, especially because you know, you aren't necessarily baking bread every day. Mm. You might have bread that's three or four days old. It's gone a bit dry. Croutons. But yeah, this was a a big cultural thing, and that's why it's called toasting. Um, well, I guess that makes this. A toast of London. Oh, wassail. Drink ale. Hey, and now we can drink. Now we can drink. Um, but oh, I should. That's the stuff. I should mention, there was a second type of wassailing that oh, also no. took place. What it, did you do? The what did you do? The punch now. Exclusively, within the apple growing cider producing regions of Southwest England. Ooh-ah-ooh-ah-ra! <laughs> Here we fucking go. Yep. All right, my lovelies. Exactly. Time to put on the wurzels and let's get some scrumpy. So in wa- in Somerset, you might Somerset. be wassailing um, on the same day, but it would look a bit different because you would actually be going around to your apple orchards. In fact, let me just read you out a quote. Oh, you'd, oh, you'd love that. The purpose of wassailing is to awake the cider apple trees and to scare away evil spirits to ensure a good harvest of fruit in autumn. Mm-hmm. The ceremonies of each wassail vary from village to village, but they generally all have the same core element. A wassail king and queen lead the song and or a processional tune played or sung from one orchard to the next. The wassail queen will then be lifted up into the boughs of the tree, where she will place toast soaked in wassail as a gift to the tree spirits. Then an incantation is recited, such as... Can you re- recite this with your best Somerset accent? Okay. Wassaility trees, they may bear you many a plum and many a pear. For more or less fruits they will bring, as do as, y- as you do give them wassailing. Exactly. Again, okay, here's another thing that I keep noticing when we're talking about these, um, about these traditions, which is there's a lot of emphasis on the idea of, like, supernatural entities having a... 
um, having a uh, sort of physical presence and able to sort of influence the, the world. Like, I think one of the reasons why people sort of point to things like the wassail tree as being like a, pre or a pre-Christian or a pagan thing is because we are very uncomfortable with the idea that there are, of, of, of strangeness in Christianity and things that you can't explain and things that are sort of eerie or otherworldly, when in fact, if you were a devout medieval Christian person, you probably did believe in, like, tree spirits and, like, boars that were evil. Like, maybe you didn't literally think, oh, if I offend the tree spirit, they're going to get killed. But you were aware of these kind of forces because they had... Because whether or not your tree fruits properly has an effect on your life. And it's an effect, it's something you can't really control. Yes, exactly. And so, and so you know, I think that, that it's not too crazy to say that Belief, some kind of genuine belief in these kinds of supernatural entities that aren't found in the Bible can definitely be seen in pre-modern Christianity, and it's not something that we should treat as being outside of Christianity. And I would take it a step further personally by arguing yes. that, on the contrary, a lot of medieval people actually managed to synthesize their supernatural beliefs into Christianity extremely well. Because if you look at medieval books such as bestiaries, which I would say are wholly Christian books, but they draw on pre-Christian sources. Well, they're, being, as... they're being produced hundreds upon hundreds of years after, you know, a society has been converted. Exactly. But they include a lot of characters and creatures from classical mythology, such as satyrs, centaurs, dragons, sirens, and it's not you know, perceived by the people who wrote these books to be sacrilege to suggest that these creatures exist. On the contrary, they're saying, well, actually, centaurs are very evil creatures and they're very ungodly. And they synthesize, you know, these creatures into their Christian schools of thought. And to imagine that, you know, these people probably did believe in some sort of supernatural forces and maybe dark magic and good magic, as was very common in the Middle Ages and very accepted, um, you know, that doesn't at all conflict with notions of a Christian society. Mm. Which is why the most medieval the most medieval modern writer is C.S. Lewis. Yes. Because he's, he, his books are full of weird shit, but also the lion is Jesus. Yes, correct. Okay, right. So, we've got our food, we've got our drink figured out. As long as we don't have any more people coming to the party, we should be able to figure this... Oh, no. Ah! Right, okay, all right, all right. Just sensible. Welcome to my home. It's actually your house, I forgot about that. Uh, welcome to Olivia's home. Uh, we're so happy to have you. This is not giving me a panic attack. <laughs> okay, we can do it. Okay. Okay. Come in. Hello there. Conrad Kaiser. It's me. The Bo famous inventor. Beloved inventor of such inventions as giant fork, man grabber, large egg, and many, many more. I did love large egg, I won't lie. It's not very Christmas, sir, though. Have you brought something for Christmas, Conrad Kaiser? Not exactly a... Thing, more of an idea of a thing. 
that's it's the thought that counts. I would like to pitch you my latest invention. The fully mechanical automaton nativity plur. You can watch the baby Jesus's head go up and down as powered by the magic of steam. That sounds very novel. It's pretty rad. Yeah, absolutely. I would, you know what? I want to see this in action. In fact, I know a few people who can help you out with it. <laughs> yes, if you, there, I know a suspiciously wealthy Eastern European prince <laughs> who might be able to give you some seed funding. Absolutely. If you help him out with this boar. Yeah, you know, Alexander III of Scotland, Dracula, and weird medieval Guy Fieri are in the living room butchering a boar for us. So maybe if you go talk to them, they'll give you a hand getting this uh, mechanical Christmas play set up. Wonderful. Good to see you as ever, Conrad Kaiser. It's good to be back. I didn't think that anyone would remember because nobody listened to episode four. <laughs> you know what? It was recorded while I, both of us were extremely hungover and I was at an all-time energy low. That's but... probably why I exist. <laughs> but you were still a valuable contribution and we see you and we respect you, even if no one else does. It's good to finally give you your day in the sun. <laughs> well, I have to say, I think that the idea of a fully mechanical automaton powered by steam of the nativity play is a pretty entertaining idea. But that reminds me, we need to figure out our entertainment. What's well, a Christmas or any holiday for that matter without entertainment? Fun fact, uh, I have no idea if this is going to make it into the show or not. I just thought you'd find this fun. Every year at Christmas, me and my cousins would uh, put together a play uh, to perform for the adults in the, uh, I don't know, the week leading up to Christmas. And then uh, we would uh, charge entry and then at the end we'd go to the corner shop and buy sweets. That is adorable. It's very adorable. We also did a an Easter play one year Aww. where I played Jesus and it produced some of the funniest images ever of me on the cross. We'll come back to that later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we will be returning to that. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, we also did, we did a wonderful adaptation of the Christmas Carol. Oh, you I was just drinking ginger beer. I played Scrooge as an alcoholic. Yeah. I was always drinking ginger beer. That's amazing. Um, so I've always been a theater kid. So, if you want to have the premiere medieval Christmas entertainment experience, there's nothing better than a mystery play. Ooh. So a mystery play is a play which depicts the um, an episode from the Bible, the Old or New Testament, and uh, a miracle. Excuse me. And a miracle play uh, depicts a saint's life. Um, you know, one of the big ones. And uh, these would be quite the production. So originally this would just be like a little thing that we put on in church. Like some local players would come along and like act out the scenes. Uh, but they got more and more extravagant the longer the Middle Ages went on. So that by the end of the Middle Ages in major towns, the way that it would be set up, right, is before the day, on Christmas Day, there would be a... Um, the wealthy and great and good of the town would pay to have their home, the outside outside of their home, included in a route map. And then at like 4 a.m., the first of a series of wagons would set off. And uh, the wagon would come along to the first location, and it would start 
it would have scenery on it and stuff like that, and it would start acting out the first of the plays. And then that play would finish, and the next person would come along, and they'd play the next section of the Bible, and they would be like, it would run for 12 hours. That's 12 amazing. hours of just like different performing troops going around the town on this route, doing each stop. And uh, yeah, it, it sounds fucking exhausting to yes, be absolutely honest it does <laughs> because you got to be standing you've got to be standing around in the cold and the performers are performing all the time like all the time for 12 hours jesus so yeah they they originally um started out as just like little things that were done in the church but the you know they got too rowdy basically as tended to happen in the middle ages <laughs> and so um people they, they sort of moved out of the church and into lay society Interesting. Another example is over the course of the Middle Ages, the church becomes more bureaucratized, bureaucratized and more separated from the lay population. Hmm. A theme that we might return to in future. Yeah, who's to say? Um, so in general, speak a little bit about those actors. Uh, in general, uh, unsurprisingly, men played both the male and female parts, whereas the women, to be fair, would work like backstage and would be involved in like making sets and costumes and stuff. Um, now, in smaller towns, it would usually be a spontaneous group of people who would put this together, and in larger towns, it would be, like, the town guilds who would organize this. And this would be, like, planned months in advance. It's, like, having seen some of these, like, productions, similar kinds of productions that are put on in parts of Europe now, you need to start planning this, like, six months out. It's insane how much work needs to go into them. Yeah, I mean, costumes, crazy expensive. Yeah. Um, and so the in the in the in the larger towns, it would often be professional entertainers who would be um, doing the performances. And uh, as we know from the jesters episode, uh, actors were not seen as sort of socially desirable people, <laughs> a bit like podcasters. Uh, so they'd be paid for their time, but their wages would be docked if they were seen to act badly or forget their lines. Wow, that's brutal. <laughs> I do love their like people would get really into it. Like there was a story that I read. Um, in of a guy who played Jesus in Metz in the 15th century where he got he put put on the cross and almost died he almost died for art did they actually nail him no i think it just hung him but it's like it's quite intense to be yeah. crucified even if you're not nailed <laughs> you would know wouldn't you <laughs> yeah i would know i guess we have to keep that in now yeah exactly <laughs> um yeah sounds like uh sounds like an intense uh, scenario well also it's like the way that I like to explain why people went to the bother of all that is this is getting less and less of a culturally relevant comparison, but I like to compare it to like the BBC One Christmas Day kind of like set list where it's like 5 p.m. Doctor Who, 6 p.m. Call the Midwife, 8 p.m. I skipped a couple of p.m.s there, 8 p.m. Mrs. Brown's Boys. That's like you would have a, there's have a, like, like, people will sit in front of the telly for, like, hours and hours and hours and hours. And because part of the experience of Christmas Day is just sitting back and taking in some weird bullshit, essentially. Yeah, definitely. Um, and mean, also, sorry, go ahead. I think another good analog could be the, um, the Thanksgiving Day Parade. Oh my god, yeah. It's not like Thanksgiving is necessarily a major spiritual holiday, but once something becomes a thing and it's beloved and people want it, then, you know, it... Not only does it remain a thing, but you could argue that it becomes kind of a bigger deal each year as they try to make it more exciting and more engaging every year. I think that also part of the part of the appeal is also just like the human interest. Because one of the things that we forget when we sort of study the the 
stories of the Bible, you know, both the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible, as, like, theological stories, is that they're great human interest stories as well. Like, you know, Noah and the Flood, right? It's about a bickering husband and wife who are trying to survive the apocalypse. It's basically Independence Day. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a Roland Emmerich movie. And, uh, you know, the story of Moses and the Pharaoh is about, a, it's about political intrigue and injustice and inequality. Yeah. Themes that are as resonant, you know, today as they were then. Just look at the Prince of Egypt movie. Yes. Um, and, you know, and The Passion of the Christ is about, you know, universal love and compassion and humility and self-sacrifice. These are compelling things. That, and that's why I make the Christmas Day TV comparison, because it's like you would take it in as... A piece of art as a piece of entertainment not yeah. just not just because you're being lectured to about jesus but because it's good fun yes absolutely and there were also similar practices in the jewish community so jewish people may be familiar with the fact that on passover we read out the story not on passover i'm gonna get my jew cut my jar to revoke <laughs> <laughs> you already got i don't know why you do this to yourself the shit people give you every time you post a Jewish thing. Re- it's so funny. It's so much worse than anything else. I know, it's really funny. Because it's like, it has this theological and, you know, identitarian component. So people are like, you got that wrong. It's like, for now. But, um, and I, I even have corrected myself in error because you also read out the story of Passover on Passover. But <laughs> the thing I was trying to describe... So you, this whole detour was pointless. The thing I was trying to describe was that you do a kind of communal public reading mm. of the Purim story on Purim. Purim also being um, sort of a festival day rather than a strictly spiritual holiday in Judaism. So you read out the story of Passover, and um, at least in my synagogue growing up, you get given a little noisemaker, and every time they say the names of the heroes, you get to cheer and say, yay, woo, and every time they say the names of the villains, you boo and you jeer. And... But this is exactly what happens with the with some of the later miracle plays because like the so like the the I talked about a lot of examples of um, of biblical um, sort of of biblical stories being adapted for the for these plays but also there's a lot of saints' lives and it has the tone of a pantomime yes in that like the people are sort of it's all very structured around like there's there's the hero and there's the villain and then they sort of they have to have some sort of resolution that can be like sad. People people are fulfilling these very specific roles. It's uncannily like the pantomime, which is a great modern British tradition. Yes. That and I would argue is perhaps directly descended from the miracle play. It's all because the miracle play, you're encouraged to be like, fuck you to the dragon. Yeah, exactly. And in in medieval Jewish communities on Hanukkah, there was a similar practice of reading out the Hanukkah story in the same manner as the Purim story. So, yes, a a very similar event. One thing I wanted to mention briefly as well while we're on Mm -hmm. the topic, because you touched briefly on women not being um, necessarily involved on the stage in medieval Christmas plays or medieval miracle plays. Um, I just wanted to bring up the point about Jewish women on Hanukkah, which is that Hanukkah, as I've said before, is particular. Well, what would you know about that? (laughs) Hanukkah, um, as I've said before, differs from um, sort of more spiritual Jewish holidays in that there's no compulsion to cease working and to cease certain activities on Hanukkah. However, the exception, there's one exception, which is 
that in certain Jewish communities, including many Jewish communities in the Middle Ages, women were forbidden from working on Hanukkah. Mm. And this is also Wait, very interesting because normally women weren't even forbidden from working during days like the Sabbath and during the high holy days of Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. And this is because of the association with the Judith story and Hanukkah and the idea. And women also are compelled to uh, be involved in the lighting of the candles on Hanukkah. The idea being that this was a miracle or a great deed that was brought about by women. And so they are equally involved, if not more involved, than men. So, very interesting. God damn. There you go. Learned a lot today. All right, on to mumming. Yeah. So, that was what happened in the, in the sort of, in the richer and bigger towns in the Middle Ages. But, let's be honest, building sets and costumes is incredibly intense and hard work that you can't necessarily spare if you are a subsistence community. Luckily, in lots of parts of uh, Europe, especially in England, there's an alternative uh, for there's an alternative to the uh, mystery plays, which is mumming. Now, mumming is basically just like a tradition where you uh, put on a mask, dance around a town, act out little stories, do stuff. Now, this is the point at which everybody says, "Aha!" Because Mumming is a pre-Christian tradition. Christian equals pagan. Confirmed. It was. It was. Um, it was practiced by, you know, Anglo-Saxons before they converted to Christianity. And so a lot of people say, "Aha! Here's another example of Christianity, the pagan holiday." But again, if you look at like what if you look at what mumming would actually meant before the advent of Christianity. It's a very familiar story. The idea is it's performed sort of really from around Halloween onwards to the uh, to just past the uh, the winter solstice. And the idea is that you do it as a practice to make sure that the sun comes back, essentially. Now, I would say... That's very Aztec. It's very Aztec. But also, I would say it's extremely Christian. Mm. Because what is Christmas... But the story of, you know, it's a story about a guy about death and rebirth. You know, that's what that's what the story of Christ is all about, right? Isn't it interesting that a festival associated with the sun that's about the death, the cycle of death and rebirth would become associated with, um, with Christianity? Like... I think what, 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 what we've been sort of subliminally doing, I think, or at least I have, I don't know if you are in on this at all, uh, but this is what I've been trying to do, is sort of make the point that, like, when this time of year is a weird liminal time. It feels weird. The days are too short. And, you know, darkness is frightening, and food is scarce, and... It's, you know, if you live in a small community, if you live, if you, or if you live in just like on your own, basically, or in a small family unit, that's an intense and frightening thing. You're coming, you are coming in a very literal sense closer to death than you, you, you will. Yes. At the rest of the, at the rest of the sort of yearly cycle. And so I think that it's not a coincidence that, it, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that the story of Christmas became attached to a story of, um, or to, to stories about sun cults and um, 
and bringing the sun back and stuff like that because it's a universal impulse. People want to sit down at their Christmas feast and look at the look at the the, the agent of the devil they've killed and say, "We are here, we are alive, we have survived another year. Have at thee." Yes, absolutely. And I I I you know, I'm not a I'm not Jewish or a scholar of Jewish theology, but I would say that that is not too dissimilar from the theme of Hanukkah. No? Yes. No, I'm, I'm completely with you. Yeah, Amal I think it's a, we're still here. It's a deeply human thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's a deeply human thing to, set, to, look, at the, to look winter in the face and say, Mon then. Let's <laughs> have a square go. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, to, to, I don't want to overstate that kind of the arcane significance of it. Like, like certainly by the, by the time that Christianity gets introduced, like mumming becomes much more about entertainment. But no, it, it also feels like something that would be deeply cathartic, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, people would... It would be people going around, basically, like, performing little plays about, like, Beelzebub or Father Christmas, more on him later, um, or St. George. And quite often it would be... Fun fact about St. George and the dragon story. That's quite a hard story to tell because dragon prop is expensive. <laughs> um, so quite a lot of the time, the, uh, the dragon was metaphorical. So, for example, after the Crusades, the dragon becomes the Turkish knight. Classic. So, politics gets folded into culture, gets folded into social experience, and how people interpret their, like, their, people's relation, people's, the way that people interpreted, you know, these classic, you know, biblical stories was, a, was characterized by the culture and the politics of the time. Yes, yes, absolutely. Oh my god, if that's not Joe Mason with the turkey and the candy canes and the decorations and all that, I'm gonna flip. I can't do this anymore. I'm so tired. Well, should we just see whoever it is and, you know, yeah, yeah. let yeah. him in. Let yeah, him in. It's the, it is the spirit of Christmas. Tis the season. Tis the bloody season, I guess. Humbug. <laughs> Welcome. Who is it? Everybody, hello! It's been so long! I'm back from Italy! Surprise! Oh my god, it's big time Olivia! That's right, it's your favorite medieval Italian-American from De Bronx. <laughs> <laughs> How was Italy? Oh my god! Oh my god, it was wonderful. It turns out they don't have bodegas over there, and when I learned that the pizza is very different... That was a bit of a shock, I won't lie. How did you do it without any tomatoes? Well, let's just say that Bronx girls make do. <laughs> what could that possibly mean? <laughs> That's beautiful. The interpretation of that statement is left as an exercise to the reader. <laughs> I thought the horror episode was in October. But most importantly, let's not focus on that. Let's focus on all of the wonderful gifts I brought back for you guys from Italy. From 14th century... Gifts from 14th century Italy. That's right. As you know, Italy is famous for its luxury brands. So I went to a real medieval, authentic Italian marketplace. And the men there, they told me all of these goods are 100% authentic luxury brands. They are not knockoffs. So I got you these sunglasses from Bucci. <laughs> 
I got you a handbag from Ver Ver Hockey. <laughs> I got you these these uh these shoes from Dolce and Banana. <laughs> and I got you this belt from Barmani. <laughs> Thank you, big time Olivia. No problem. I'm just doing what I do best. That's right. Now, I there there's some sort of hog butcher situation in there. I would appreciate it if you could sort of apply some of your uh, Bronx girls makes do uh, can do attitude to uh, making that whole thing work. Well, as a Jewish girl. Wait a minute. You're Jewish. <laughs> yes. No, I'm Italian. Just kidding. Um, you could be Italian and Jewish. Yeah. No, that's not a thing. <laughs> <laughs> As an Italian, I do love a good salami, so I have a vested interest in making sure that this scenario all goes according to plan. Thank you, big time, Olivia. I'm off. Look, we gotta just sort some stuff in here, but we'll be through in a minute with, uh... Oh, we don't know quite yet what with. But, uh, we'll see you in a bit, okay? All right. See you later. Goodbye now. Goodbye. Tell your mother hello from me. Me? Goodbye. We're you're going into a different room. Do you have right, object I'll permanence? I'll see you soon. All right. Bye-bye, darling. Right, okay. We need to, we need to like, figure this out. Because, like, people are here now. The party is here. <laughs> and what are we going to give all of our medieval Christmas party guests as their gifts? I mean, we have Dolce and Banana, but I don't think that'll play. <laughs> Gift-giving. Right, okay, what do people give people in uh, in the Middle Ages? Well, all of the usual stuff. I mean, food and money, those yeah, are yeah, some yeah, of the yeah. most popular gifts. But they also like to give, like, writing and poetry. Yes. Like, uh, so the great example is, like, uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Like, that probably originated based on the sort of how the story starts, which, of course, starts with the King Arthur and his knights at the round table at Christmas... Being like, who shall give us a tale? <laughs> yeah. Um, like that, I you can imagine that very easy, like easily that being meant to be sort of read at the Christmas dinner, sort of in the sort of in the sort of style of it was a dark and stormy night kind of way. Yes, absolutely, and I think um, I touched on before with wassailing that often there would be this kind of exchange between um, a peasant and their lord. And that was an important mm. component to gift giving as well, that a peasant kind of owed their lord their fealty and their um, sort of, you know, respect, but also that the lord should recognize and acknowledge and return some of that favor with a gift. It's very sort of, you there, boy, bring the biggest goose you can find sort of thing. Yes, exactly. You know, it's about, it's, it's the noblesse oblige. Yep. One more thing to say about Gwyneth the Green Knight. Which is that, of course, there is, in that story, a boar hunt. Interesting, isn't it? Yes. The theme, these themes keep recurring. It's almost like these are important cultural motifs that people at the time would have recognized. <laughs> um, so, if, so if there's nothing particularly unique about... Um, sorry, there's nothing particularly different about medieval gift-giving. My big question is, who's giving all these gifts? Santa Claus? Well, sort of. Only if you're Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> so, there is in medieval England a concept of Father Christmas. Now, of course, for any sort of Americans or non-English speakers, Father Christmas is the 
basically the British name for Santa. Like, it's the same guy. Yes. But that's more of a sort of traditional name for him. Now, Father Christmas does exist um, in medieval culture, but he's not a specific guy, and he's not meant to be literally real. He's more like the ghost of Christmas present in um, A Christmas Carol, or, to use the source material's name, A Muppet's Christmas Carol, um, where he's just like a jolly fellow who represents the, the spirit of the season. Now, to understand how that guy becomes Santa, we need to talk about Nicholas of Myra. Now, Nicholas of Myra was a... He was, he was a bishop in uh, what is now modern-day Turkey. He was, uh, he was a Greek Christian, and uh, he lived in the 3rd and 4th centuries. And he was reported to have been an incredibly charitable, generous man. Now, of course, we don't have any contemporary accounts of his life. We only have hagiographies, so we don't know how much of this is real. But it's certainly fair to say that he was, he is, of the saints, he's particularly associated with charity and with children. So he becomes, after his death, he is, when he is canonized, he is the patron saint of children. And um, he's also, by the way, I have a list of other things that he's lesser known for being the patron saint of, which are archers, brewers, pawnbrokers, unmarried people, and students. Wow, he's got it all. He's got it all. Um, now, in, particularly in the Dutch-speaking parts of the world, he becomes known as Sinterklaas, which is a you know, Dutchification of St. Nicholas, um, who, is, who was celebrated and is still celebrated um, on the 5th of December. Um, basically what happens on Sinterklaas is a kid gets elected bishop, money gets distributed to poor people, and to, to children by putting it in their shoes. Now, that tradition keeps on going in the Dutch-speaking world, uh, into the modern period when it is brought by Dutch settlers to America. Classic. And gets appropriated by American culture at large, who transform him into... Santa Claus! So it wasn't Coca-Cola who invented fucking Santa. Stop repeating that myth. It was the Dutch. Ah, even worse than a, a large <laughs> mega corporation. Over time, this um, tradition kind of combined with local folklore... And other traditions to give a wide range of Christmas gift givers. Um, so most of these, we have the first evidence of them after the medieval period. So I won't dwell too long on these, but a couple I enjoyed reading about um, are a French character who's apparently prevalent in South and East France, as well as Belgium and Switzerland, Switzerland who's named Père Fouettard which is French apparently for old man whipper or father whipper, who is like a dark Santa who accompanies Santa Claus around and gives um, the naughty children beatings and coal. Shadow the hedgehog for Santa. Based like, um, like Wario for Santa. <laughs> <clears throat> and also, I think this tradition is still a thing in Catalonia. Yes. The gifts are given by a log that shits them out. Oh, shit. I've just realized. Mm -hmm. We spent all this time talking about medieval Christmas, and we didn't actually do any medieval Christmas. We're oh, fucked. Oh, no. We're totally screwed. Okay, I just... All of our guests are gonna hate us. You know what Dracula gets like when he's angry. Yeah, well... I think we're just gonna have to go in and just break it to them that we didn't put on a very good Christmas this year. Yeah. Or Hanukkah. Well... <laughs> I think we gotta just bite the bullet and, you know, just do it. Okay, here we go. Inshallah. <laughs>
What? What's all this? Oh my god, you guys! It looks beautiful! That's right. These guys were making a total dog's dinner of the salami, so I, I, I butchered the pig myself and turned it into sausages for us. This looks amazing. And I have finally assembled my Notovata soon. It only blew up three times. Wow. I'm not going to lie. It still looks like it probably breaks some fire codes, but I don't even care because <laughs> it's the holidays. As you can see, I've lit all of these beautiful candles. And that must have been a massive struggle for you, Dracula. Yeah, most, you. I'm, I'm aristocracy. Mostly I just watched. <laughs> You contribute so much, Dracula. Oh, thank you. Gay Dracula, who's I'm, also I'm, Aaron's roommate. I'm a queer icon, what can I say? <laughs> Alexander Third of Scotland, you might not have contributed much, but you're so drunk that you forgot to drink all of the other alcohol you brought with, your, with you, leaving some for us. I mostly just brought my sparkling personality and this sparkling wine. <laughs> wow, classic Alexander. And I used all that blood to make mince pies. That's a crazy. What kind of blood was it again? Don't worry about it. <laughs> Too late now. Oh. I mean, I like I I'm I'm so amazed you guys you put together such an amazing feast. I I just feel really bad because we don't have any presents for you. Cause Joe Mason's still in that hole. And he probably will be for the foreseeable future. I'm <laughs> sorry, <laughs> just can't. Trying to match Joe listening to this. <laughs> He's good. He'll like it. He's part yeah. of the lore now. Joe yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's good. It's good. Um, wait, what's over there? Yeah, that? I don't know what you're talking about. There's all these presents over there. What? Who brought all of those? I didn't get... Did you buy presents? I didn't buy any presents. Wait a minute. You know, I was wondering about who brought all of those presents because, you know, I saw the door open and I saw this like, it was like a log with legs came in and crouched over in the corner and I, I got distracted because the hog was putting up a real fight. But when I looked again, there were all those presents. <gasps> it must have been. <gasps> Could it really be? The Cagatillo? <gasps> the shitting log of Catalonian Christmas? Ah, oh, now I really do believe in the spirit of the holidays. It's a true miracle. And if you at home want to really get into the spirit of the holidays, there's no better way to do that than by purchasing Weird Medieval Guys, How to Live, Laugh, and Love in Dark Times. That's right. By, uh, by a little-known author who you may have heard of by the name of Olivia M. Swarthout. That's right. What does the M stand for? It's a secret. I'll never tell. <laughs> Yes, that's right. As you probably know by now, I've written a book. It's a fabulous book. And more importantly, it makes a fabulous Christmas gift for yourself. A stocking stuffer. Your loved ones, or a your Hanukkah family, gift, you your lovers, that. your enemies, your neighbors, your teachers, your pets. Just any anyone you know that you can get a book into their hands, get my book. Make sure it's that book. Woo woo. Please. It's lovely. It's just a really great... I mean, yeah, if, if, if you're not sure about... Uh, if you're not sure about... Um, whether or not you can get it delivered on time, then you can go and maybe ask your local independent bookstore. Yes, please um, do. It's, you know, lots of places do stock it, believe it or not. Yes, many do. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, thank you so much for listening once again to the Weird Medieval Guys podcast. Uh, we are going to be taking a little bit of a break. Um, 
over the Christmas period. But don't worry, there will still be podcast. <laughs> There's a special episode we've got lined up for you guys. Yeah, so that'll and that'll see us out to the end of the year. Yeah. So um, I hope everyone enjoys their festive season immensely. Whether or not you're eating fried dough or um, weird or drinking weird ale with bread in it. Wassail. However you do it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, just, you know, take some time off, spend some time with some loved ones and importantly, enjoy the holidays. Yeah, well, I want to see what the shitting log gave me. Let's take a Shall look. Shall we go? I hope it's some Bucci sunglasses. <laughs> oh, hey, mate. It's, it's Joe. I, uh, got some bad news. I don't know if I'll be able to make it to a Christmas party. Been excavating this well. It's gone pretty deep. Steep sides. I think I'm a bit stuck. But have a good one, yeah? Merry Christmas.